The three-time World Formula One champion Sir Jack Brabham has passed away on this special Inside Motorsport. We hear more about the man. I hope you'll stay with us. Sir Jack Brabham, Australia's greatest Grand Prix driver, passed away on Monday the 19th of May. He was world champion in 1959, 1960 and 1966. And in 1966 became the first and still only man to win the World Formula One driving championship in one of his own cars. In fact, in his 126 Grand Prix starts from 1955 to 1970, Brabham had 14 wins, 10 second-place finishes and 7 third-place finishes with 13 pole positions. He was Australian of the Year in 1966 and awarded the Officer of the British Empire in 1966 as well. He was the first driver in history to be knighted for his services to motorsport and Brabham was also honoured in 2003 as a legend of Australian sport. If you're Australian, be proud of it. He was inducted into the International Motorsport Hall of Fame in 1990. In 2013, Sir Jack, alongside the 1980 World Formula One champion from Australia, Alan Jones, were honoured with their likenesses, sculpted in bronze and unveiled at the Formula One Grand Prix in Melbourne. And the bust now fittingly stands at Albert Park's Grand Prix circuit. Jack Brabham wins the French Grand Prix and the Grand Prix d'Europe. In one of his last interviews he gave, Sir Jack Brabham spoke about how he got started in a motor racing career. I used to go to night school three nights a week and um, they, uh, the learning curve really was uh, motorbikes actually. I was uh, really playing motorbikes in the early days. It wasn't until uh, much later that I got involved with cars. Jack Brabham was first involved with Speedway, which really started his driving career. And then uh, after the um, war, when I got discharged, I got involved with a uh, chap by the name of Johnny Schumberg. And um, he, uh, he, he was a, a racer, actually. He used to race on the Speedway. And I didn't, hadn't even seen the speedway in those days. Um, but anyway, I got involved with him and finished up. Uh, we built a car together and um, he was to be the racer and uh, I was the mechanic. But unfortunately, he had a couple of crashes early on and his wife stopped him from driving. And uh, she didn't want him driving. So I was left with the car then. So I thought, well, I'll have a go at this myself. I did, that's how I started. Of course, 1959 was Brabham's first world title. Um, we uh, got the um, two and a half litre Climax from Coventry Climax and uh, that really put us on the road to uh, winning because uh, we'd been on a back foot with an engine that was smaller than the uh, ones we were racing against. But when we got the two and a half litre engine, it put us up with them. And... Uh, 
finish up, win the championship in 1959. Uh, I'm very, very pleased to have won it indeed. And I certainly owe a lot to John Cooper and the Cooper Car Company and also my mechanics and everybody that's helped me get as far as I have. And it's been a great thing to me. The amazing part of Jack Brabham's 1959 title was, of course, he famously pushed the race car across the start-finish line in Sebring in the USA to gather the points he needed. Well, actually, uh, you know, what happened, um, John Cooper refueled the cars uh, and um, he put one chair and a fuel less in my car than he put in Bruce's car. He got, got them mixed up somehow and uh, the car ran out of petrol on the last lap and uh, I coasted it almost to the line but I had to push it the last 50 yards over the line and uh, I finished fourth by pushing it over the line and that gave me sufficient points to win the championship. In an atmosphere of great excitement, Jack Brabham pushes his car across the line in fourth place to become the first Australian ever to win the World Championship. Going back to back in 1960, Brabham spoke about that year's title. Yeah, we dominated it really in 1960. Uh, we had a very good car and uh, we won a lot of races that year. Yeah. And, uh, Actually, um, I think the most thrilling race was uh, the, the Rings Grand Prix, French Grand Prix at Rings, when uh, we downed the Ferrari team and everybody said we wouldn't be able to beat the Ferraris at the, this particular circuit because it was a fast circuit, and we beat them. And that was a great thrill. Uh, I think it was probably the most exciting race I've ever had, really. Brabham formed a partnership with Australia's Repco, and went on to use a Repco engine in the 1966 title. And then um, they decided to change the former again to uh, three litre. And uh, the um, three litre formula, of course, was um, a lot more interesting, particularly for us. And of course, we didn't have an engine, but I uh, luckily had a, a good in with um, Repco in Australia. and. Uh, uh, between us, we built an engine for um, the um, the new formula, three-litre formula, and that turned out very successful. We won a lot of races and won the championship in uh, 1966. Sir Jack Brabham changed the face of the greatest spectacle in motorsport, the Indianapolis 500 in 1962, when he turned up there with a Cooper Climax, a rear-engine car, to take on the might of the American roadsters. Yeah, actually, um, Cooper's got a sponsor for us to go to uh, India in 1961. And of course, I drove the car, and we, um, we only had a 2.7 engine, and we were racing against 4.2 cars. So that was on the back foot, really. But it really surprised the people in America just how well that car went, in spite of it having a very small engine, because it was rear engine and it was the first rear engine really that was competitive at the Indianapolis. And uh, it, uh, it really impressed them, and it, it not only impressed them, but it changed the whole scene of Indy uh, to uh, go in rear engine cars. And uh, the rear engine car really took off from there, and. Uh, 
Unfortunately, every time I go back there now, of course, I get blown for costing them a lot of money. They had to throw all their equipment away and start again. So uh, that was um, a pretty successful uh, uh, race meeting for us, really, although we didn't win them. Uh, we certainly won a lot of um, uh, prestige uh, with the rear engine car. With three sons that seem destined to be motor racers themselves, Geoffrey, Gary and David have all had very successful careers. So all three boys finished up in motor racing, which was the thing I'd come back from Australia, from England, thinking that they wouldn't be involved. And they were all involved. And uh, of course, luckily they've all done very well too. Geoffrey particularly uh, won the IMSA Championship four times in America. And, uh, and um, uh, Gary won the former 3000 championship in England and, uh, and David won the former 3 championship. Brabham spoke about the year in particular that was so special to him when he was racing with his sons. In 1989, I had all three boys win the championship in their own right in the one year. And that was a great thrill. Brabham also spoke about Le Mans, one of the world's great sports car races, which two of his sons have won outright. Uh, the incredible thing is, of course, that uh, uh, Geoffrey won Le Mans in 92, uh, I think it was, and then uh, David won it again just uh, a few years ago. So I've got two boys that have won Le Mans outright. Uh, that was, that, that's fantastic. Not too many families can say that. Now Matthew Brabham is part of a third generation of Brabhams competing in the USA. The son of Geoffrey, Sir Jack, gave us his thoughts of his endeavours. And uh, he's got a great future in front of him, uh, I, I think. And, uh, he's done extremely well so far and he's got the right attitude to it. He's um, and come through the ropes, he's done started racing when he was seven years of age. So uh, he'd come the right way through the uh, go-karting and everything and then into Formula Ford and then to uh, America. Uh, so he's done it all the right way and I think he's got a great future, I really do. Sir Jack Brabham's last victory in Formula One came in 1970 in South Africa. Here he is speaking after the event. See, I had a little incident in the very first lap and uh, Rint ran over my front wheel and uh, this put me back quite a bit on the first lap because I was worried he may have done some damage to the car, so I took it easy for a few laps until I made sure the wheel wasn't going to fall off. Uh, actually, it was terrific. The car went fantastically well. For a brand new motor car, we're fantastically pleased. I think the boys have done a fantastic job preparing it. Take it. To put Sir Jack's legacy into some sort of perspective, I'm joined by the chief motoring writer for the Fairfax Media and also the editor-at-large at Auto Action, Mark Fogarty. Jack Brabham certainly left his mark not only on Australian motorsport, but motorsport all around the world, and in particular, Formula One. He was not only a three-time world champion, which is nothing to be sneezed at, but he actually won the 1966 World Championship in a car bearing his own name. He's the first and he will be the only person ever to achieve that distinction. Going back to his first few years in Formula One, he helped pioneer the rear engine revolution, which completely changed the face of not only Formula One, but open wheel motor racing. And he went on to win the 59 and 1960 world titles in those 
funny looking at the time little rear engine Cooper climaxes. He's not just Australia's greatest racing driver. He is one of, you know, our all-time national sporting heroes. I've just been working on a, an appreciation piece for the Fairfax Media Papers, and the angle I'm taking is that, you know, he's he's right up there um, with other Australian sporting greats who achieve notoriety on the international stage. You know, he's up there with people like, yes, Don Bradman, Dawn Fraser, Rod Laver, you know, any of those um, conventional athletes, if you like, um, he deserves to be recognised and as revered as they are. As we mentioned, Speedway was where it's all started. And Dennis Newland is one of Australia's premier Speedway riders. 1948, in fact, uh, was when uh, Sir Jack Braddon got involved with Speedway driving speed cars. Um, it was, an, in fact, uh, an American, Johnny Schonberg, uh, who persuaded him to drive a car that they had both uh, constructed and uh, the rest is history as they say. Uh, he uh, virtually at the start of his career won the New South Wales Speed Car Championship and um, went on to become... And in those days, as you well know, Craig, there were a variety of different Australian titles under the under the tag of uh, the Australian Championship and of course uh, Sir Jack was successful at national title level as well. Um, magnificent uh, career in speed car racing, no question of that, raced successfully uh, at venues, Brisbane Exhibition Ground, uh, Raleigh Park in Adelaide, the Kilburn Speedway in South Australia, and uh, really that was the um, that was a launching pad of his uh, ultimate move into Formula One, um, but it was Speedway that got it all started for him. You know, the, the, um, the fascinating aspect of this uh, so Jack Braddon, uh, even though his years in World Formula One racing became leg- legendary, he never ever lost sight of his grassroots of where it all started for him. And uh, if it was a major event or a major night, you would always see Sir Jack Braddon there. A prime example of this was 1975 at Sydney's Liverpool City Raceway when uh, the legendary four-time Indianapolis winner AJ Foyt made his Australian debut in the Australian Speedcar Grand Prix, which he successfully won, and I might add retained the following year. But um, Sir Jack Braddon was there as one of the special guests on the night. So he never, ever lost sight of where it all started for him, and that was on the Speedway Oval tracks. Mm. Perhaps the one thing that people don't understand is how big an impression taking that rear-engine car to Indianapolis not only changed the face of motorsport in the United States but also recognition of the races over in the United States around the world. And he sparked the rear engine revolution also at the Indianapolis 561 where he took a Formula One car over there. The the Americans who are used to their big front engine roadsters couldn't believe their eyes. They called the uh, little Formula One Cooper a funny car, but they weren't laughing when the thing, um, well, probably could have won the race and in the end due to the fact that they just didn't have the right tyres, and um, Bradman still finished ninth, and um, that was the end of an era of the roadster dinosaurs. The face of the Indianapolis Speedway was never the same again. The following year, Dan Gurney emerged with uh, his Eagle rear-engine cars, and of course that saw the entry of Jim Clark onto the uh, Indianapolis stage, and of course Clark won the 1965 Indianapolis 500, but it was Sir Jack Braddon who changed history 
at the hallowed Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Sir Jack Brabham's greatest rival on the racetrack was Sir Sterling Moss, who this week on the BBC reflected on Sir Jack. Yeah, well, he was a wonderful guy, I must say. My, my career would have been far less if it hadn't been for him because every race, and I'm talking of 50, 50 times a year odd, we would fight against each other, trying to beat each other in the sport of Formula, mostly Formula One. But Jack was always clean. He'd go over the edge sometimes, throw through rocks. But, you know, we had a great feeling of rapport together. And one thing I would like to say, and that is that uh, I remember in New Zealand in the early 50s, I had a car there racing against him, and we were, we were contending the New Zealand Grand Prix or something like that. And my back axle, uh, Hardy Spicer broke. The first person who came up was Jack. He said, look, take it off my spare car knowing very well there was a good chance that I might beat him. And that sums him up to me. I mean, a real sportsman and, uh, and a good Aussie. So Jack's son, David Brabham, of course, a couplish racer himself, spoke about his father's relationship with Sir Sterling Moss. I was um, born kind of after, after all of that. So it's all the stories that I heard either from my father or, or, or Sterling. But my, my father had massive respect for Sterling, and then actually, if you ever sat down and, and asked him who was the driver he he thought was the best that he'd ever driven against, <clears throat> he was straight to the point and said Sterling Moss, without a doubt, because uh, Sterling could could get in a car and drive anything. And you know, it was so so nice to to see and hear Dad talk about those days, and and particularly with Sterling. Uh, because you could you could just tell that it, it meant an awful lot to him, and, and it's it's been great to see that their relationship, um, you know, continued after they both retired and and had a, a, an amazing amount of respect. The 1980 World Formula One champion was Australian Alan Jones, who this week took a moment to talk about his experiences with Sir Jack. Well, it's a huge loss, not only for Australia but the motor racing world. I mean, Jack was probably admired and better known in parts of Europe than what he was here. I'm sure he was probably more appreciated in, in one respect. But, um, you know, he's truly one of the greats. He's up there with Banjo and Schumacher and some of the great men of motor racing. And, um, you know, today, today will be a very sad day for the motor racing world. Well, Jack was a man of few words. He certainly wasn't a chatterbox, that's for sure. But um, when he spoke, you listened. Um, very down-to-earth man, very genuine man, very genuous man. Um, when I first went to Europe, he uh, invited me to go and have a look through the Brabham factory and he was very kind to me um, and obviously a great inspiration to me. I think Jack's achievement to win a Grand Prix in a car that he actually designed and built and engineered was an enormous achievement. It wasn't done before him and I doubt very much indeed it'll be done after him. And it's a rare breed. I mean, uh, certainly in this day and age, you know, the drivers don't do any work on their own cars. But in those days, you know, Sir Jack would jump out of his car and probably attend to it, the mechanical side of it himself to a certain degree and uh, jump back in and win a Grand Prix. He was very inspirational. I mean, he's also been inspirational not only to me but many other young blokes that have gone over to pack your bags and go to the other side of the earth to a country you've never been to before to pursue your dream or your passion or, or your chosen occupation is one thing but he proves it could be done. I, I think he'll be rem remembered as the man that built his own car, engineered his own car and won a world championship in it. No one's did it before him 
No one's done it since, and I don't think it'll ever happen again. We've hoped you've enjoyed this look back at Sir Jack Brabham's life. It was a remarkable story. Perhaps to finish it off, it's best to hear from one of his closest friends who worked side by side with him in England, Ron Taranak, amazing engineer who helped the Brabham name become synonymous with manufacturing as much as driving. Yes, do, you want, do we want to start with how I met Jack? They built the second car for my brother, which was something like a, a Lotus 7, but Lotus 7 hadn't been made then, and uh, it was a road car special. So Jack had advertised a, a Vincent uh, 500cc engine. No, it wasn't a Vincent, a Velocette. And uh, I was looking for engines to put into my 500cc car, so we drove up in this car and uh, entered Jack's workshop, which was the back of his grandfather's house, I think. And uh, uh, I bought the thing, and he took an interest in the car, so we started talking about cars. And I saw his workshop and asked if he took on subcontract work. And he thought I meant for myself in racing, and people in racing never pay their bills. So I said, no, nothing to do with racing, I'm subcontracting for CSR Chemicals and discuss what it was so from then on I subcontracted work and we got to know one another and uh, met at races and things and uh, then when he went to England in like 55 he wanted to uh, develop Cooper cars a little bit so he'd write me an air letter and uh, ask for suggestions this was probably about a couple of years after he'd been in England when he went to Cooper's and I'd come back like one of the letters which I've still got that you wanted to get rid of the transverse leaf spring on top of the rear end, which acted as a wishbone, and put wishbones on it. So I sent back a sketch with the suggested dimensions, and so they did that. And then I think in uh, in '59 they got the idea of this uh, low line keeper, which was, it was strictly Jack and John Cooper, but not the old man. The old man didn't want to change anything. And Jack again wrote to me and asked for a. Uh, a design for a pattern so they could drop the engine three inches or 75 millimetres because they uh, it was way above the height it needed to be and he wanted to put some drop gears in so I drew the bell housing and had the pattern made in Australia and he put it under his arm and took it back to England when he came out for the Tasman series and in the meantime he'd been to uh, the gearbox people in France told them what he wanted and they didn't want to do it in any, they just do mass production. And he said, Well, look, let me have a look at it. So he beefed the pattern up with some plasticine and whatever and uh, got the gearboxes cast so they were upside down so that you could then put the uh, power into the right thing and that dropped the engine. And so that was the, uh, the low line Cooper start. Then, when he won his world championship in the second time in 1960, he came out for the Tasman series and he offered to pay my fare and put me up for six months to go over there and see if I liked England and wanted to stay. Well, I was married and had a four-year-old daughter and I wasn't going to leave them behind, which Jack did when he went. And uh, I changed the deal and uh, Jack wanted me to go to America on the way to race engineer his Cooper sports car there. So my wife and daughter and family goods and chattels went on the boat and I flew to America met up over there and looked after the Cooper and got on to England and that's that's how we uh, we got over in England and then the uh, the arrangement in England I, I 
worked for Jack Rabbit Motors initially, um, doing design work for various sort of development of road cars. I think we put uh, twin Weber carburetors on a Sunbeam Rapier, and then the uh, I think it was the Herald that had this swinging half axle rear end and whatnot, and they put the uh, Climax. 1100 in engine into that and uh, so I had to put the engine in and then sort the suspension out in the light of my previous knowledge of swinging off axles and get that working and that became a car they made quite a number of and in the meantime I was uh, designing the first Formula Junior car of a night in uh, in a flat we'd rented over there and uh, when the car was designed I suppose at some stage during this uh, a company was formed uh, called MRD for Motor Racing Developments and Jack had invested £2,000 in it to build the first car and so instead of being a 50-50 relationship which was the original idea uh, it became 60-40 in his favour. Uh, I should have been smart enough to say look I'll owe you half of the 2000 and I'll pay you back but I wasn't that smart business wise so that's the way it worked. And so I built the Formula Junior car. And then we, uh, Jack then had a pilot's licence. And I'd been a pilot during the war. So uh, he was going to fly up to the Isle of Man to watch the race there. So he took the SO competitions manager, Jeff Murdoch, and uh, Gavin Yule from Tasmania, and myself. So Gavin and I sat in the back seat. And on the way up, I told him about this Formula Junior I'd just done and more or less sold it to him on the way up there. He wanted to buy it, so he believed me, and I think then he raced it, and he did a couple of little track events, and then the big race at Goodwood was coming up. So he went down there, and he qualified on pole, and uh, then that was on qualifying was, I think, one day, and there's a day off, uh, and then the race was on the Sunday. And... Uh, so Lotus took their cars away, changed the engine. They got uh, um, Cosworth to put new engines in and beef them all up. They came back, and so uh, Gavin ended up, ended up coming third. Well, up to that stage, the car was mine. Uh, Jack didn't want anyone to know or Coopers to know that he was involved in it because he was going to drive for them the next year. And, of course, once it won, uh, he made it public that <laughs> he was involved in the car. And uh, so then I think some that we were in a little workshop which I think Coopers had previously been, been using for their race team and so we were in there. And then uh, uh, we were going to expand so Jack knew Repco and they had a, just put in a sort of a, a warehouse in Surbiton and we... Uh, I think in exchange for calling their cars Repco Brabham's or Repco, yeah, because we changed the name to Brabham, calling them Repco Brabham's, they let us use their workshop. Sir Jack is survived by his wife, Lady Margaret, sons, Jeff, Gary and David and their families. That's all we have time for on this special edition of Inside Motorsport. Until next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.